Hey, science nerds, welcome back to another episode of MRSA podcast, where we explore research in various science disciplines at McMaster University and try to bridge the gap between Canada's most research intensive university and the new generation of science leaders it's fostering. My name is Daphne and I'll be your co-host alongside Jadeep. Hello, everyone. Welcome again to MRSA podcast. So today we're honored to be joined by Dr. Martin Gibala from the Department of Kinesiology. So Dr. Gabala runs the Human Performance Lab here at McMaster, where he focuses on studying exercise physiology and metabolism. And in particular, Dr. Gabala is renowned researcher around the world because of his research work and advocacy for high-intensity interval training, or HIT for short, being on various podcasts, guest speaker platforms, and having his work talked about in various media outlets, such as the CBC, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and other outlets. In addition, Dr. Gabala is also the Faculty of Science Research Chair, as well as the author of The One Minute Workout, which talks about how we can fit exercise into our busy and everyday lives. So, Dr. Gabala, it's a privilege to have you on the podcast today, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you. So today, we'll be delving deeper into your research by discussing high-intensity interval training, or HIT for short. Um, background theory involved in your research, sprint snacks, the practical applications of your research, and lastly, the role of undergrads in your research lab. But before we get into all of that, would you be able to tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself with respect to your academic journey, your field of research, and how you ended up at McMaster University? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm originally from Windsor. Uh, I've always been interested in exercise, physical activity. Uh, I completed my undergraduate degree in kinesiology at Windsor. And then after that, I actually came to McMaster for a, a master's degree in exercise physiology. My doctoral training was at the University of Guelph, and I spent two years as a postdoctoral fellow in Copenhagen at the Copenhagen Muscle Research Center. I had the opportunity to come back to McMaster in 1999 to teach an undergraduate course, and that led eventually to a faculty position. So I guess I've been at McMaster just about uh, 22 years. My interest in this particular area is both personal and professional. So for over 20 years now, I've taught a fourth year elective course called the Integrative Physiology of Human Performance. And many students who take that course, they're interested in previously athletes and you know people are interested in the training regimes of elite athletes but increasingly interested in just the health related effects of exercise and physical activity but i would often ask the students you know why do these athletes perform short hard sprints or so called anaerobic exercise and why does that make them better endurance athletes or aerobic athletes and when i first started teaching the course i was a busy assistant professor. I have a working spouse. We had two young children. And so ironically, I found myself quite time pressed to get in my own exercise. And so that personal interest in high intensity interval training dovetailed with some of the work that I was teaching the students. And that has led to research that that continues to this day, including the application of the work, uh, you know, beyond the laboratory and the exercise snacks that you uh, alluded to at the start. That's great. And I think we can all like really um, relate to the fact of like having to fit exercise or trying to at least into our really busy schedule. And so since you've already we've already touched upon that topic, um, could you give us an example of um, a specific HIIT protocol, for example, um, maybe talk about the Wingate test and how that um, you guys measure or study HIIT in the lab? Yeah, so a very common performance test in exercise physiology is called the Wingate test, which it was developed at the Wingate Institute in Israel, and it involves 30 seconds of all out as hard as you can go exercise. So you can imagine sprint from danger pace, or what I would say, save your child from an oncoming car, or save <laughs> a loved one from an oncoming car. It's as hard as you can go. And that's typically done on a specialized ergometer. So a special bike that we have in the laboratory, but the best way most people can think about it is if you were to go to the pulse or another fitness facility and you got on a bike and you set the setting as high as it could go. So even after about 10 or 15 seconds, it's hard to turn the pedals. It's like pedaling through sand. And so the the bike sort of gives back just enough that you're able to overcome the resistance. So the point being, it's a very demanding form of exercise. And it was a model that we started with, but it's not necessarily very applicable for everyday individuals. And so we started with that Wingate work, but over time, we've looked at what we've come to call 
vigorous exercise. And so that's a challenging pace, maybe a seven or eight on a 10 point scale. So I'm sure we'll get into this a little bit, but interval training is not only this all out as hard as you can go gut busting type exercise. At the other end of the scale, there's something as simple as interval walking. And that's been shown to be very effective, for example, in obese individuals with type two diabetes. So interval training is a, it's a method that can be scaled to, to many different starting fitness levels. Oh, and that's awesome. And you actually touched upon an interesting point, which we will get back to in the later podcast is uh, applying these features to different sort of populations, as you said, uh, type two diabetics, which I'm looking forward to discussing with that. But before we go into that, as a continuation and sort of follow up to that question, how do you uh, practically define the point of exhaustion in these wind days tests? And in addition, how do you uh, measure effort? Like what sort of apparatuses are there aside from the cycle itself? Do you utilize to measure different parameters on the subject on the subjects that you are uh, subjecting to this exercise protocol to. Yeah. And I realized that Daphne asked me a question about a protocol, which I didn't even answer. So I'm sure we'll get back to that as we go through the, uh, the interview, uh, exhaustion, we will define that essentially as volitional exhaustion. And so that means when the person gives up. And so that's the, that's the best definition. We ask them to do something and they refuse to, to do it, or they say, I'm unable to do that. That's the point of volitional exhaustion. But of course, we will often measure physiological markers, things like age predicted maximal heart rate. Sometimes we may take a blood sample from them to see uh, if there are compounds accumulating in their blood that suggest to us they're at their true uh, physiological point of, of exhaustion. So typically, we use a variety of subjective and objective markers to try and uh, indicate uh, exhaustion. Um, so I'm going to stop talking there again and let you ask the question that you want to next. Um, yeah, so um, so you talked about like the different um, variables or things that you measure during these Wingate tests. And in a lot of your papers, we read that um, you guys measure VO2 peak as one of your main primary outcome variables. So um, can you um, define VO2 peak and explain primarily first its importance for health? And then we'll go into um, how HIT um, impacts that. So VO2 peak or VO2 max is peak oxygen uptake or maximal oxygen uptake. It reflects the highest rate at which the body can use oxygen. And so it's gonna be measured in so many units per minute. And why it's important is it's the most objective indicator of your cardiorespiratory fitness. So when people talk about their cardio health or their fitness, really what they're talking about is the integrated capacity of their heart, their lungs, their blood vessels to transport oxygen through the body. A high VO2 max is important for athletes, endurance athletes, but VO2 max is important for everyone because cardiorespiratory fitness is a risk factor or it's, it's a variable that's linked to our risk of dying from all causes. It's linked to our risk of developing many different chronic diseases like type two diabetes and cardiovascular disease. And epidemiological evidence will tell us that if you have roughly about a 10% higher cardiorespiratory fitness, for example, your risk of getting cardiovascular disease is 15% lower. So there's a direct relationship there the more fit you are, the lower uh, your risk of developing many of these uh, diseases. How we measure it in the lab is we basically have people do incremental exercise until this point of volitional exhaustion that we just talked about. But you know, people might think of uh, an exercise stress test where they see someone on a treadmill working at higher rates. We measure their oxygen uptake through a gas mask, and that provides us with this very objective marker of their cardiorespiratory fitness or VO2 max. Okay, that's awesome. very, interesting. very interesting. And I guess you also, uh, in relation to that, aside from VO2 max, you also measure other parameters as well by taking these sort of muscle biopsies, right? And uh, in relation to that, we've seen that another parameter that you also measure or try to theorize into in your papers is this idea of skeletal muscle remodeling. So I was wondering if you can also explain to our leader, our, our listeners, sorry, what is a, a skeletal muscle remodeling, how it cor correlates to improved metabolic adaptions and exercise performance in these individuals that you are subjecting your exercise test to? Yeah, you guys are asking great questions. Um, so 
I'm classically trained as a skeletal muscle physiologist. So I'm interested in how does skeletal muscle use fuels like sugars and fats to produce energy so we can walk and you know, have locomotion. Skeletal muscle remodeling refers to this process of how skeletal muscle changes or adapts to the stress of exercise. And so in our studies, you're right, we will sometimes take muscle biopsies or very small pieces of muscle before and after a single or acute bout of exercise. And we will literally look at molecular signaling pathways, specific genes and proteins that we know are upregulated because these uh, lead to or stimulate this process of muscle remodeling. And in some of our other studies, we will take biopsies before and after a period of endurance training or other types of training. And we will look at specific components of muscle. A major focus for us is something known as mitochondria. And you can think of it as a a network that runs through muscle and it's, you know, it's often termed the powerhouse of the cell. I'm sure many of your <laughs> listeners may recall that from high school biology, but what the mitochondria do again, they're the place where we use these fuels like sugars and fats to produce aerobic energy. And we also know just like VO2 max is related to disease risk an increase in mitochondrial capacity lowers your risk for things like developing type two diabetes. And so you can think of it as VO2 max sets the ceiling, your peak capacity, and your muscle, in particular, the mitochondria set how close to the ceiling can you work? So what's your, what's your sustainable power output and not just, you know, what's the highest power output that you can achieve. And so skeletal muscle and the cardiovascular systems interact together uh, to, uh, to determine performance, whether that's athletic performance or simply just our ability to climb up the stairs without getting tired. That's great. So is it like fair to say that due to these changes in mitochondria will have like, or will increase our VO2 peak essentially. So these phys underlying physiological adaptations will change our VO2 peak. Absolutely. And so skeletal muscles, it's often viewed as sort of the minor player in VO2 peak because it's not so much the ability of skeletal muscle to use the oxygen. It's more what limits it is our ability to deliver the oxygen. So that's primarily the cardiovascular system, as we talked about earlier, but you're absolutely right that skeletal muscle plays a role in VO2 max. And so when we exercise, we basically upregulate a lot of things. We improve skeletal muscle energy metabolism and we improve the cardiovascular system as well. Yeah, that's great. And I think we talk, you talked a lot about um, how aerobic um, or how this anaerobic Wingate testing improves aerobic exercise, like for, especially for elite athletes. So how would you say that, um, for example, some, someone like a university student who doesn't have time um, would more, be more inclined to do HIIT training, but do you see professional athletes leaning towards HIIT training or because they obviously dedicate more time and have that ability to you know, do longer um, workouts compared to just the HIIT itself? Yeah, I think any serious endurance athlete includes interval training as part of your training, as part of their training. But to your point, many of these athletes literally train for 30 hours a week or so. And so the, the normal rule of thumb used by elite coaches and elite athletes is about an 80-20 mix. So about 80% traditional low to moderate intensity continuous type exercise. Athletes call this base training or aerobic base training and 20% high intensity slash interval type training. That's sort of a, a tried and true method for optimizing endurance performance in high level athletes. Now, for many mere mortals or, you know, busy students who are still interested in physical performance. I personally, my view is, of course, the first thing you just need to be doing is being physically active. And so, you know, just getting up off the couch and being active, that's the biggest hurdle that we need to overcome at the population level. But for those who are time pressed, I think interval training offers high training quality. And so for the relative amount of time investment, you get a lot of bang for your buck. And so you can certainly use that 80-20 mix, but I think if you're interested in time efficient training, then maybe sliding that ratio a little bit more to 50-50 or whatever works for you. The point being, the more vigorous the physical activity, the shorter the time you can get away with and still promote health benefits. So basically like getting the most bang out of your buck, as you've said. 
So this is actually a good segue to the question that I have, which is, uh, you know, we talked about endurance athletes, right? But returning to your lab, right? What sort of populations do you conduct your research on and which sort of populations intrigue you the most? Like, is it mostly the, the uh, average Joes that don't really get the time to do exercise or do you also do research on like endurance athletes as you've previously mentioned? We, we do research on a wide variety of individuals and I like to think of it or I like to tell my students that we're, you know, we're not a diabetes laboratory, we're not an elite human performance laboratory, and we're not a cell biology laboratory, but we can sort of play in all of those sandboxes. And I think our best studies sort of touch on all of those areas. And for example, we'll look at health and performance related outcomes in a wide range of, of individuals. So I would say our, our, our bread and butter work, if I can use that term, you know, our our basic mechanistic research is often involves recruiting young, healthy individuals, often college and university age students, but in that sort of 18 to 35 range, and they're healthy individuals. And, and you know, we study those individuals to sort of look at basic underlying mechanisms. And then our applied work, it leans in two directions. We can either lean it to more uh, applied work from a performance standpoint. So what makes athletes better? And there we're specifically recruiting highly trained individuals or high level cyclists, for example, and looking to improve their, their race performance. But we're also interested in less healthy or non-healthy individuals, including people with conditions such as uh, type two diabetes or impaired glucose tolerance, looking at ways that exercise can enhance health indices such as insulin sensitivity uh, in those individuals. And I, you know, I think that's a real attractive element of our work. We don't sort of only play again in this idea of one sandbox. And, and so I'm able to, I think, tailor the type of research that we do to a trainee's uh, interest. And that's really uh, excellent because you want to make sure that all different populations can benefit from exercise, be it, you know, people that have diabetes or average individuals or other people that have cardiovascular diseases, right? They have different limitations in their sort of physiology because of their diseases. And you want to optimize the uh, exercise protocol for, so for them to benefit the most. And on that topic, I had another question that I wanted to follow up with that, which is how do you select the participants? And when you select these participants, do you gauge their activity, uh, physical activity levels with a sort of diagnostic bout of exercise? Aside from like after you recruit them from like surveys, do you gauge their physical activity after that? Because, you know, it may be easy for one person to say, you know, I live a sedentary life lifestyle, but they may perform surprisingly well on an exercise test for some reason. So how do you select these participants and standardize the experimental and control groups? Yeah, great question. And it, it, of course, depends on a particular study. But generally speaking, we're going to have inclusion and exclusion criteria in our studies. And so sometimes the inclusion criteria would be deemed healthy uh, based on uh, questionnaires. And so a very common questionnaire is something called the Get Active Questionnaire, uh, which is put out by the Canadian Society for Exercise Physiology. And it's, it's a series of fairly straightforward questions that talks about how active are you, but probably more importantly, it has screening questions to try and identify if someone has an underlying health condition that might make them not suitable to engage in exercise or in particular vigorous physical activity exercise. So that would be a very common screening questionnaire. Often we're interested in, is someone sedentary? Are they what we might deem insufficiently active? So they do some physical activity, but they're not meeting the guidelines. Or at the other end of the spectrum, are they a relatively highly trained individual? And there we will use VO2 max as an inclusion criteria. And so, for example, we, we would test an individual and they would have to have a VO2 max that's within the 90th percentile for their age group. And we know then that they're a relatively trained uh, in individual. So it depends on the study. Uh, I would say we have these subjective screening questionnaires that are used for preliminary screening. And then very often we will verify the responses or the numbers that we're, that we're seeing uh, with some preliminary tests before individuals are fully recruited into a particular uh, study. Last point is often if we're dealing with non-healthy individuals or those with specific disease conditions. So for example, in our type two diabetes studies, 
anyone who is potentially being recruited into the study went through a full uh, 12 lead ECG stress test that was then, uh, you know, uh, screened or followed up by a cardiologist who either gave the person the thumbs up to engage in our study, or occasionally people were ruled out because something would be revealed that suggested uh, they're not suited to do vigorous intensity exercise. Yeah, so on the topic of um, individuals who aren't able to do these vigorous bouts of exercise, um, I think I read in one of your papers that um, specifically individuals with perhaps cardiovascular disease or cardiovascular issues, they wouldn't be able to, um, you have the, for example, high motivation and effort required to perform the Wingate test. I was just wondering what other like HIIT protocols and exactly what types of other zones of HIIT where we were talking about, like walking around the block would be a, a sort of example. Yeah, um, you're right. And, you know, there's many different ways that we classify exercise intensity. If we look at physical activity guidelines, we will often use markers related to maximal heart rate or VO2, but sometimes simple perception of effort. You know, we have this zero to 10 scale or a six to 20 scale, a Borg scale is another um, way. I, I like to think of it as green, yellow, and red zones. So regardless of how you establish these zones or where you set the cutoff points, green is light to moderate type exercise, uh, you know, that's typically defined as less than about 65% of an individual's maximal heart rate, or maybe a three out of four on a 10 point scale. Yellow zone would be classic high intensity interval training. So you're pushing it, but you're not necessarily going all out. And so that's vigorous, but submaximal pace. And then the red zone is super maximal or all out as hard as you can go uh, type efforts. And to your point, the green zone for some individuals would be interval walking. So as simple as it sounds, if their only activity is walking around the block, maybe with their spouse or partner in the evening, they would pick up the pace for a few light posts. And so they can just subjectively feel they're a little bit more out of breath, or it might be a little bit harder to carry on a conversation. That's an example of interval training for that person. And there's research, including randomized clinical trials to show that just slightly varying up the pace, it may induce greater improvements in fitness, it may improve more favorable changes in body composition, and more favorable changes in some of these markers like 24 hour blood sugar, compared to just continuous steady state walking, you know, both are absolutely much better than doing nothing at all. But that would be an example of where an interval based approach just slightly varying the pace may confer some additional benefits. So it's, it's definitely great to see that there, there's a way for exercise or HIIT training essentially to be accessible to a lot of different populations and individuals. So I was just wondering um, in specific um, to different types of or accessibility of HIIT. So not necessarily just doing HIIT on bicycles, you talked about walking around, but um, hopefully we can dive into a little bit about like the stair climbing and the sprint snacks, um, that type of work that you've been doing. Um, could you explain that to our listeners a little bit? Because I know like a big barrier to exercise is time, but also in the case of the pandemic, it has been resources. So it'd be great if you could explain to see how just using stairs would be um, an easy way to work out at home. Yeah, you're right. And so uh, a couple uh, points there, just getting back to the first point about applicability, one of the favorite slides that I like to show in presentations, even to, you know, various groups of, of non-experts is it's a heart rate tracing from two different individuals. And one is from a coronary heart disease patient and the other is from an Olympic athlete. And they're doing the exact same interval training workout, <laughs> four bouts of four minutes at 90% of the maximal heart rate. Now, obviously the speed on the treadmill would be very different between those individuals. But the point is that it, the relative stress is, is very similar. And it dramatically, I think, makes that point that this type or this approach to training can really be scaled to starting fitness. Uh, to your point about different activities, a lot of our lab-based researchers use the bike because it's easy to quantify work and power. It's relatively safe to do vigorous exercise on a bike. You're not going to go flying off the back of a treadmill. But there's also an old saying that your, your heart doesn't really know what your muscles are doing. And so what that means is you can get a cardiovascular stress or develop your cardiovascular capacity many different ways. And so I think that's an empowering message. So whether you like ellipticals or swimming or stairs or running or hill running, 
it doesn't really matter from a general conditioning standpoint. And so people can utilize many different types of activities, uh, dancing, Zumba, you know, it doesn't even have to be structured exercise in order to engage their cardiovascular system and benefit. Taking that a step further then to the exercise snacking analogy, this is just the idea that wherever you are, you, you don't need space, much space at all. You don't need specialized equipment and things such as simple as body weight exercise can be effective or walking up and down a single flight of stairs or a few flights if you happen to live in an apartment building or or work uh, in an office tower or you know, attend school on the McMaster campus. So again, it's, I think, an empowering message that there's no single best way to do this. And there's infinite variety that hopefully can resonate with, with someone. Building off of this question, I'm interested uh, just to ask you a bit about the nitty gritty in terms of like the parameters that you measure with these different physiological adaptations in different hit protocols compared to like biking, uh, stair climbing. So I wanted to ask you, are there any uh, different ph uh, physiological adaptations for uh, a hit protocol when you compare, for example, biking with sprinting or uh, biking with stair climbing? We asked this because uh, across a few of the papers that, uh, that we read, we realized that there were, uh, there were different physiological adaptations depending on the hit protocol. But like for a traditional hit protocol with the Wingate test, we saw in one paper where a cohort of diabetic individuals saw significant differences in their blood glucose levels, like re reducing the extent of their hypoglycemia. But another paper that you published in 2018 pertaining to a stair climbing hit protocol, there was no significant difference in uh, blood glucose levels. So we were just interested in, in knowing, you know, what accounts for these differences when comparing a hit protocol between, for example, biking and sprinting or biking and even stair climbing. Yeah. So a, a couple points to that one. One is, Clearly, the volume of exercise or the total amount that you do still plays a role here. So, you know, when people ask me, you know, can uh, a common question is, could I run a marathon using just short, hard sprints? And my answer is, well, you probably could, but I'm not sure that you would run the best marathon that you have in you. And so whatever parameter you're looking at, there's an intensity aspect, there's a duration aspect. And so in the first study that you alluded to, uh, that was a 10 by one protocol. So people were doing 10 minutes of interval work in total, 10 one minute hard efforts with a minute of recovery. And in the other protocol, they were doing about 30 seconds of stair climbing repeated a couple of times. So both of those are interval training studies, both looking at a specific outcome related to blood sugar control, but the outcomes or the results were different in part because the dose of the exercise was, was different. Um, the last point there is that there are large inter-individual differences in responses. Mm -hmm. And so if we had 100 people in a room and we gave them all the exact same interval training program, some are going to thrive, some are going to wither, and there's going to be probably a broad middle that might improve whatever we're looking at by 20%, for example. So I think the take-home message there is it speaks to ideally a varied approach to training. And so utilizing different resistance training, aerobic training, some intervals, some continuous work, that's generally going to be uh, the best plan on average for most individuals, because we're not very good at predicting who's going to respond the most to a given type of exercise. And so you sort of spread that risk around a bit like investing. Mm. <laughs> yeah, you bring up a good point. Like as much as these, uh, there are different hit protocols, at the end of the day, there's also inter-individual differences that you have to account for because not everybody's physiology, or not everybody's metabolism is not the same, right? And another Thing that I wanted to touch upon was another outcome, and that's uh, the idea of maybe potentially weight loss. So does the evidence for a hit suggest in helping in weight loss compared to typical endurance exercise? And because your research tries to focus on, you know, how low can you go? How, how, much, like, how much you can lower the volume of uh, exercise intensity in order to gain the maximal benefit? But it's, uh, it's logical to think that, you know, the less, the lower the volume of hit, it's more likely that you're less likely to lose weight, right? So what does the evidence on HIT training suggest for weight loss? Yeah, so a couple points there. First is exercise clearly can play a role in supporting weight loss, body composition change, 
efforts, but it's always going to be the minor player. And so, you know, nutrition is the main uh, driver there. And when you just do the math on how many calories you have to burn to, you know, to burn off a donut, for example, it's a disappointingly high, high number for most, <laughs> most individuals. Um, but specifically related to, to hit like the fitness improvements, I think there's a time efficiency aspect there. And so we've shown, for example, that the total calorie burn over 24 hours, you can get the same effect with 20 minutes of intervals versus 50 minutes of more traditional continuous exercise. But it's important that we don't overstate the effect. You know, personal mm -hmm. trainers will talk about the afterburn effect. That's this idea of a heightened metabolic rate in recovery. It's true, it's real, but it's often overstated. And so I think for people to think they can just do a few hard intervals and it's magically gonna melt away all of the pounds, uh, that's unfortunately not, uh, <laughs> not true. It offers you a bit of time savings, but let's not overstate the magnitude of the effect. Mm -hmm. That's great. So we've talked a lot about um, your work in HIT and the research in specific, but um, we want to move towards discussing perhaps the applicability of your results, especially um, toward and disseminating your knowledge and your research towards um, your target audience. So on that topic, um, we were wondering what motivated you to write your book, The One Minute Workout, and as um, in, and also, sorry, um, work with Dr. Stuart Phillips to develop your Coursera course, Hacking Exercise for Health. I would say, you know, scientists uh, on some respects uh, or on some level, we all have egos. We all want to see <laughs> the impact of our work. And so for a lot of, you know, traditionally you measure impact by the number of times a paper might be cited. Now that doesn't mean it's cited necessarily for good reasons, but for example, if a scientific paper was cited a hundred times, that, that was quite good. Or if you know, a classic would be cited a thousand times, but there's many different ways to have impact. And increasingly I've been interested in science communication or impact beyond these traditional science measures. And to your point, it's trying to translate these findings into clear, hopefully simple messages that people can adopt on their own. And so the book effort was an attempt to try and simplify and translate often diverse, confusing messages around this notion of interval training for everyday people and sort of break down these barriers that it's not only for elite athletes, you know, these messages that we've talked about interval training is not only this all out as hard as you can go gut busting type exercise, it might be suitable for many people. And so I was fortunate to have a co writer for the book, whose name is Chris Shulgin, he's a journalist who I'd met through some other circles. And so we tried to get to the point where I was happy enough with the scientific message, although that meant giving up some control, if you will. Uh, and, and, you know, cause sometimes I would say, no, we have to say it this way. And Chris would say, well, that's boring. No one wants to read that. And so we tried to get to this point where Chris was happy enough with the accessibility of the message. And I was happy enough with the scientific uh, rigor of, of the message. But I think for scientists, that's often that's a challenge because we're so used to writing cautiously and we, we throw up all these caveats and an average or non-expert reads it and can't make heads or tails of it. So you need to give up some of that experimenter control in order to put it in a, a language, if I can use that term, that, that resonates with people and they go, okay, I can see how I might be able to adopt that in my own life. Mm -hmm. And I agree because this actually is a great segue to one of the questions that I wanted to ask you with respect to balancing like your 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 uh, your duties in public in publishing work, but also translating for the uh, for the general audience. Right? We've seen or we've heard from previous podcasts that you've done of some challenges when it comes to your research with respect to publishing your work in the most highest impact journals versus accommodating your work to the general public and translating only the relevant parts of the. Uh, exercise research for them. How do you go exactly about doing this? I know you kind of alluded to it in the previous question, but aside from maybe the book and the Coursera, maybe in your uh, everyday life, I know you've had your work featured in various media outlets, as we've talked about earlier, and even in, you've been a part of many podcasts. How have you, and how do you strike a balance between scientific publication and then translation to the general public? 
Yeah, no, that's a fantastic question. And, and I think par partly it comes with time and just increasingly getting comfortable in your own skin. So clearly when you start out as a young scientist or young faculty member, it's true that publicate, you know, and to this day, of course, publications still matter to me, high impact or as high impact as possible. Publications matter, attracting grant funding, which is related to where you're publishing your work. That's all important. But I think as you start to establish a track record, it gets a little bit easier. At least you're more of a known quantity and you can publish uh, your work. And so that will always remain an important aspect of our work. We want to publish in good quality journals. I absolutely have to try and attract grant funding to continue our work. But you can temper that with this other line of work that I think has increasingly been recognized for its value, including by the university. And so the university where service before meant sitting on a thesis committee member, uh, you know, sitting as a thesis committee member or sitting on a grant panel, the university is increasingly recognizing that service can be these knowledge translation efforts, talking to the media, um, you know, doing a Coursera course as having a, a lower impact publication that resonates. And, you know, I've had the um, experience a couple of times where we've submitted our work, it's been rejected by a journal, we resubmit it to, you know, an ostensibly lower tier journal, and it's picked up by the New York Times. <laughs> and so, you know, the, the media interest in your work does not necessarily equate to the scientific excellence of the work. But I think as long for me, I've, I've gotten to the point where as long as I think I'm reasonably balancing that, I'm okay with that. And I know sometimes our studies are just going to be very simple applied studies, but I know the message is really going to generate or resonate with the general public. And I'm not going to publish it in the most impactful journals in, in my field. And, and that's okay. As long as we're still trying to do some of the basic fundamental work to publish that type of research that I know the media is never going to be interested in, you know, the molecular regulation of this particular <laughs> compound. No, definitely. So yeah, we talked a lot about like how important knowledge translation is, especially towards the general public. And I think a big way of reaching them is through perhaps policy. Um, so how do you think or your research or how do you do you strive for your research to um, support public policy or public health guidelines? Yeah, again, I think it, it it goes back to one being comfortable with your own skin and, and, and within your own skin and, and knowing you know, knowing what's the reasonable impact of your work. So for example, I'm often asked, well, why is an interval training in the public health guidelines? And, you know, I appreciate, or I certainly have come to appreciate the degree of evidence that's required for public health guidelines, right? We need these large scale epidemiological evidence, uh, you know, large scale randomized uh, clinical trials. And that's generally not the type of work that I do. I, I can't conduct more small scale proof of concept studies, but we've, uh, we've been encouraged by, or we like to think maybe we come up with some ideas that then other people can pick up on as well, who are well suited to do that type of, of research. And so rather than having a direct impact on public policy, I'm hoping that our research is stimulating um, some work by others and collectively this might inform uh, public policy. And so specifically related to interval exercise, Many countries and public health agencies have recently updated their physical activity guidelines. In the United Kingdom, for example, there's more explicit reference to high-intensity interval training and the role that it might play. Canadian and United States updates um, have, have not mentioned it specifically, and, and that's fine, right? So you have different groups of experts that are looking at the same research and coming to different conclusions in terms of the level evidence of required to, you know, to make a recommendation. Uh, last point would be another example would be in the area of cardiac rehabilitation. So in Norway, for example, high intensity interval training is fundamental to a lot of cardiac rehabilitation programs in North America. It's, it's much more varied. Uh, and again, that's fine. The point being, you have the same experts looking at the same evidence coming to slightly different uh, conclusions, uh, and, and that's okay. 
And to build on that question, I'm curious to know about a specific sort of population with respect to type two diabetes, right? Because in one of the papers that you read, which I found truly fascinating because I do have family members that are type two, diabe uh, type two diabetics, you saw that in your uh, paper, uh, you subjected this cohort of individuals who were type two diabetics to a HIT protocol, essentially only a 75 minute uh, amount of uh, time commitment of exercise per week, which only which 30 minutes was high intensity. And that was enough to lower their blood sugar levels significantly, right? But what was interesting about this study, and this goes back to the idea of informing public policy was that this, rec this uh, amount that you found was much lower than what the guidelines state for type two diabetes, which is, I think it says here, 150 minutes of vigorous uh, exercise per week. I was wondering if you could elaborate on that. And if, has your study uh, informed any policy changes to specific populations with certain diseases, aside from you know, general health uh, exercise guidelines. Yeah. So what I would say, because that study you allude to, I think it was published in 2010 or 2011. And so, you know, there's been a decade of work since then. And so I think mm -hmm. that would be an example of where our study was, was small scale, but relatively novel at the time. And now subsequently you're seeing systematic reviews and meta-analyses on the potential for interval training to alter various measures of glycemic control or insulin sensitivity. And so to answer your question, we're certainly not at the point where the physical activity guidelines have been changed, either general physical activity guidelines for Canadians or those specifically put out uh, by agencies that focus on, on diabetes. But I do think there's a greater awareness and acknowledgement of the potential value of interval training. And, you know, for my book, we interviewed and we talked to literally some of the individuals that write the physical activity guidelines, including some MD PhDs, for example, at Harvard. And one uh, conversation I remember, they were making the point that, you know, interval training, it already fits within the guidelines, right? And so if you were to do, um, if you might be interested in a team sport and you play, 30 minutes of ice hockey or 30 minutes of football or soccer, you're not exercising continuously for 30 minutes. You might be on the field every third shift, but it still counts to that 30 minutes of interval training. And so, you know, potentially we'll get there where you might see 150 minutes of moderate exercise, 75 minutes of vigorous or 30 minutes of intense interval type training. Uh, but we're not there uh, yet. And, uh, and like I say, that that's okay. I guess this also sort of emphasizes how HIT, although it's like explicit, HIT is also implicit in many of the exercises and sports that many people play on a daily basis, like basketball, right? You don't continuously sprint up and down the court. It requires regular bursts of short intensity sprinting, followed by some jogging, walking, et cetera. And that's what I found really interesting. And as a last sort of question, based upon your translability of your research, we're curious to ask you about how does your research inform your teaching specifically? Because your research is so well known in the scientific and even the HIT community. And the fact that research is always fluid and changing, how does that help you in enhancing your and teaching uh, your students in your course, such as uh, kinesiology for CO3, which you've talked about earlier, the integra integrative physiology of human performance. And it's, you know, we've seen the historical records, old course outlines, you've been teaching that for the longest time. So I'm interested to know that. I would say it's integral to the course. And so that course, you know, as, as a senior or fourth level, upper level elective course, it places a heavy emphasis on reading, interpreting scientific literature. And so some, how I approach that course is I will try to give students the fundamentals. So he, here's the big picture things that regulate energy metabolism during exercise. But then here's a very recent paper, including sometimes from my laboratory. So, you know, here's a paper that we just published that was looking at the effects of interval training on cardiac output and suggesting there might be some sex-based differences in some of the responses. And so I, I think then that the, the students are obviously interested in that are often interested in the latest research. And so continuously, I would say I'm updating the course content to sort of sprinkle in some of our latest uh, research uh, findings. And sometimes, so for example, this year, I had a 
um, senior graduate student who actually works in Dr. McDonald's laboratory. Her name's Jennifer Williams. Uh, she's a senior PhD student and she's very interested in sex-based differences. And so she came and gave a guest lecture on the class talking about some of her research uh, that's directly relevant. So to your point, uh, the latest research from our laboratory is directly relevant to the course content and it's embedded in the course content and it's slightly updated or changes every year. That's great. It's great to see um, you really emphasizing the importance of science literature or sorry, literacy. And I think that's really important for those trying to get into the world of science. Um, so just to wrap up um, this whole section and um, before we move on to talk about the role of undergrads in your lab, um, we just wanted to know perhaps um, outside the context or limitation of time, why would somebody perhaps choose a HIT workout or over um, endurance training? So, or do you recommend a balance of two? I know you said for um, the, and, and the elite athletes, um, there's the 80-20. So um, perhaps you could share what you maybe like doing or what you recommend for anybody who, you know, who is open to hearing that. Yeah. And so, you know, part of the reason we got into this research or area was to try and establish other strategies to engage in physical activity that are grounded in good science, right? And so when we first started this, in some ways, we, we rediscover this topic of interval training every decade or so. But I think really over the last 10, 15 years, there has been this recognition that many different types of people can do it. And there's many different ways uh, that, uh, that, that you can do it. You know, biggest challenge we have facing our country and many countries is just getting people to engage in physical, physical activity at all. And there's many different challenges for why they don't, with time being one barrier, but clearly lots of socioeconomic uh, barriers uh, to, uh, to individuals engaging in physical activity uh, as, uh, as well. Many people think that exercise is only this special thing that you do at the gym after you change into spandex. And so, you know, we're trying to break down those barriers a little bit by saying, no, no, you can do it at home. You can use stairs. You can do whatever, whatever you want. And so I'm clearly a proponent of interval training. I like the time efficiency aspect to it. And so for both body weight style exercise training, I do a lot of cycling as well. It Again, I think the biggest message for people is just do something. Ideally, find something you like and enjoy, and you're more likely to uh, to stick with it. Uh, we often say that you know interval training it expands the movement menu, so it gives people different options that they might want to experiment with and try. And so, when it comes to your question about you know what motivates people, it's not just this time element. There's sort of two schools of thought. Some people say interval training is destined to fail as a public health strategy because if people find exercise uncomfortable above their lactate threshold, they're never going to do it and they're not going to stick with it at all. And there's a whole other school of thought that says, no, no, wait a minute. Some people actually prefer or like this style of training or occasionally would like to do this style of, of exercise. And so I've sort of learned to tread carefully in the behavioral area and I will let the behavioral experts really fight it out. Um, but my personal opinion is, you know, interval training, it's, it's not a fad. Uh, it's here to stay. And I think as more people learn about it, um, they're, they're willing to, uh, to give it a try. You know, the message that we've been giving people for many decades now is clearly not resonating with a large segment of society. And so if we can give them a few other options to choose from, and even a few percentage points of the population choose to engage in it, that's great. Yeah, I guess the take home message from that is uh, don't just sit around and do something. Something is better than nothing, right? And then adapt your lifestyle to try to incorporate this interval training in order to, as you said before, get the most bang out of your buck which is awesome to hear. So as we conclude this uh, podcast, Dr. Gabala, we wanted to touch base upon the role of undergraduates in your research lab specifically. So my question to you is, what roles have um, undergraduates have specifically in helping you progress in your research findings in the human performance lab? And moreover, um, what do you look for in potential applicants who are interested in working at your lab under your supervision? So undergrads are integral to our research. Uh, typically, they become involved in our research at the third year level. And that's in part because, you know, 
as I'll often say to students, regrettably, there's a large number of uh, expressions of interest to a very limited number of opportunities, right? So we have 850 students plus in kinesiology. Uh, I will sometimes uh, accept or supervise students from outside the program in other programs across the faculty, across the university. Uh, but there's so much interest that now these experiences are typically fed through experiential learning courses. And the first opportunity is typically a, a 3RP3. And, you know, there's other, there's variations of 3RP3 or a research placement course uh, across the faculty, across uh, the university. Um, so this past fall, for example, we had three, three RP3 students. Each was paired up with one of my senior graduate students uh, working on a particular study. Uh, students also have the opportunity to complete fourth year thesis uh, projects. We will supervise undergraduate student research awards. So there's various mechanisms, but the reality is, you know, in a given year, four, five undergraduate students are going to get an opportunity in, in my laboratory through one of those uh, mechanisms. Uh, what I look for, usually uh, if a student approaches me and says they're interested, um, I, I'll ask them three things. And, and that's, I'll obviously want to see a grade report because at the end of the day, grades are still important. They're not the main driver or they're not the only driver rather, but they are an important uh, consideration. Uh, I will ask students, why are you interested in our work? Uh, you know, just based on your questions, um, you know, you, you have clearly done your homework. And, and so I would be interested in at least a student saying, Hey, I, you know, I'm, I'm interested in exercise physiology for this reason, or some of the work that you do resonates for, for this reason. And the last thing I'll ask them is, you know, what's your next step goal upon, uh, graduation or what do you want to do next? And many students are undecided and that's completely fine. Uh, it's, you know, many students that come into kinesiology are, are interested in this area, they're interested in health-related careers, but I'm not only looking for people that say, I want to do a PhD in physiology. You know, it's you can have varied interests, of course, but I would like to try and get a sense of uh, what's motivating you, what are your goals, where are you trying to uh, to go? So there, there's no perfect system, but I think we've, we've streamlined it a little bit. And then what I tell students is, submit your application by this date. I'm going to look at it. I'm going to share it with some of my graduate students. And then we tend to generate a short list of applicants. We'll then typically interview and then we'll make a final selection of, of a few uh, individuals who are going to be the successful candidates in a given term. Wow, thank you for that insight. I bet it's really, really helpful for our listeners who are interested in joining your lab. And really with that, that brings us to the end of our podcast. So thank you so much, Dr. Gabala, for joining us here today. And um, we really um, enjoy having you here. And um, we learned a lot about um, hip training and how we can really fit any type of exercise um, into our daily lives that which can get super, super busy. And again, it was a pleasure having you here. And thank you for joining us once again. Thank Thanks so much for the opportunity and your fantastic questions.